You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 190th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last episode, we finished setting the stage for the Battle of Antietam by taking the story right up to the evening of Tuesday, September 16, 1862. That evening, the opening moves of the battle took place as the Federals of Joseph Hooker's First Corps crossed Antietam Creek and clashed with the Rebels at the north end of Robert E. Lee's line, north of Sharpsburg. In keeping with the general ambiguity of George McClellan's plan, such as it was, for the upcoming battle, his orders to Hooker were rather vague. Hooker, Hooker was told that he was to move across the Antietam, and once across the creek, he was to angle to the left and move south toward Sharpsburg, feeling for Lee's left flank. Hooker received his orders about 2 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, and at around 4 o'clock, his three divisions started to cross to the west side of Antietam Creek. The divisions of George Meade and James Ricketts used the upper bridge while Abner Doubleday's division crossed just downstream at nearby Pry Ford. As soon as First Corps got underway, Hooker rode back to McClellan's headquarters to obtain clarification of his orders. He apparently didn't receive any more specifics, probably because McClellan had little idea of Lee's actual dispositions there north of Sharpsburg and little knowledge of the lay of the land in that sector, but Hooker was told that he was at liberty to call upon reinforcements if he should need them, and that upon their arrival west of the creek, they would be placed under Hooker's direct command. With that promise in mind, Hooker returned to his troops. As Hooker's troops probed forward with Meade's Division of Pennsylvania Reserves in the lead, they would clash with the enemy in the area around the East Woods. Now, in your mind's eye, you can easily picture a map of this part of the battlefield. There was the north-south running Hagerstown Turnpike. Now, angling in from the northeast, the Smoketown Road joined the turnpike, and at that spot was the Dunker Church. So the two roads form a triangle, really an upside-down triangle, with the church to the south at the apex of the triangle. North of the church, where the Smoketown Road entered the East Woods, was the area around where the fighting on Tuesday evening would take place. Right. So, just as there were two roads here, there were also two woodlots, the East Woods and the West Woods. And their names um, are fairly self-explanatory. 
The West Woods was immediately to the west of the Dunker Church, on the west side of the Hagerstown Pike, and then the woods ran for about 300 yards north of the church. So you've got the two roads, the Dunker Church at the apex of the triangle, the two woodlots, and then kind of in the middle of the triangle, between the two roads, between the two woodlots, was Farmer David Miller's 30-acre cornfield. There were plenty of other cornfields during the Civil War where soldiers would fight and die, but only this one, at the Battle of Antietam, would earn a terrible fame as the cornfield. At any rate, Miller's cornfield extended eastward from the turnpike to the edge of the East Woods, and as Tracy said, it was in this area, northeast of the Dunker Church, where the fighting on Tuesday evening took place. The Confederates hadn't remained idle while the Yankees began their flanking movement late on Tuesday afternoon. Jeb Stewart's cavalry had been stationed on the Army's far left to watch for enemy activity. Rebel vedettes, or mounted sentries, posted near the upper bridge, had immediately spotted the Federal movement. They reported the enemy movement to Jeb Stewart, who was at the Dunker Church, and Stewart, in turn, passed the news to Robert E. Lee, who was meeting with James Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson in Sharpsburg when he received the message from Stewart. Lee immediately instructed Longstreet to have John B. Hood's division move north to meet this threat to the Army's left flank. Oh, and FYI, but by moving to the northern end of Lee's line, Hood, who was normally part of Longstreet's command, would be in Stonewall Jackson's area of responsibility on the battlefield, and so Hood would subsequently be taking orders from Jackson. And this is a good example of the flexibility of the Confederate command structure, and how that flexibility and his trust in his principal lieutenants would allow Lee to shift units from one part of the battlefield to the other. Hood's division, consisting of two brigades led by William Walford and Evander Law, had been resting near the Dunker Church when the long roll was sounded and the men quickly rushed to fall in. They immediately advanced north beyond the little church and formed a line of battle. The division's left rested on the Hagerstown Turnspike and extended east along the south edge of the Miller Cornfield for a few hundred yards and then into the east woods. Hood later reported of his men, quote, They were in high spirits and defiant, even after great fatigue and hunger. They were in high spirits and defiant, even after great fatigue and hunger. Those words could have been used to describe the condition of most of Robert E. Lee's army at Sharpsburg. Hood's troops, like the rest of Longstreet's command, had made the forced march from Hagerstown to South Mountain on September 14th to go to the aid of D.H. Hill when the Federals had attacked the passes over the mountain that day. Now, several days later, at Sharpsburg, Hood's men, like the rest of Lee's army, were about worn out. And like most of the rest of Lee's army, they were also sorely in need of a good hot meal. 
They had been subsisting on roasted ears of corn and green apples picked along the way since pretty much the beginning of the Maryland campaign, and often there hadn't even been time to roast the ears of corn. So they just ate raw ears of corn? Yeah, pretty much. So there was the corn, and then a lot of Confederate soldiers mentioned the green apples they ate during the campaign. So with all of that, it's no wonder that diarrhea was just rampant in the ranks of Lee's army here. I mean, poor guys. Okay. Well, on Tuesday evening, while Hood's division was advancing to its new position there north of the Dunker Church, the men suddenly found themselves exposed to Federal artillery fire coming from the far side of Antietam Creek. The big 20-pounder parrot rifles of the Army of the Potomac's Artillery Reserve began firing at the rebels from a ridge next to the Pry House, where McClellan set up his headquarters. The arrival of those powerful guns was one of the reasons Little Mac apparently waited to open the battle. Remember that, in McClellan's mind, the opposing armies were probably of nearly equal strength, and Little Mac knew that in a clash between armies of nearly equal numbers, artillery superiority could give the Federals a crucial edge. McClellan's 20-pounder Parrot rifles and 32-pounder howitzers were superior in range and explosive power to anything in Lee's artillery train. From the high ground east of Antietam Creek, the big Federal guns could hit anything on the battlefield that appeared in their line of sight. On Tuesday evening, as Hood's troops advanced to their new position, the heavy long-range shell fire caused relatively few casualties, but it was terrifying nonetheless. Colonel P.A. Work of the 1st Texas remembered how, quote, the enemy's shells passed over and above us from 20 to 50 feet, the lighted fuses as plainly visible as the glowworm's light. Colonel Wofford, uh, commanding Hood's famous Texas Brigade, said, quote, We formed a line of battle and moved up to a cornfield in our front and awaited the advance of the enemy, who had by this time opened on us a brisk fire of shot and shell from some pieces of artillery, which wounded one officer and some dozen men. With the Texas Brigade under Wofford on the left and Law's Brigade on the right, Hood sent some men from several companies from several regiments forward as skirmishers. From the Texas Brigade, about 100 men from the 4th Texas moved forward to an excellent position along a fence line on the far side of the East Woods, and from there awaited the enemy advance. To their front was a clear field of fire. By that time, Meade's division of Federals had started south, guiding on the Smoketown Road. Hooker personally directed the 13th Pennsylvania Reserve Infantry, the Bucktails, to advance as skirmishers toward a woodlot that lay to the left of the division front. That patch of woods was the East Woods, and so the Bucktails' advance would take them straight toward the rebel skirmishers from the 4th Texas. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The 13th Pennsylvania Reserve Infantry was led by Colonel Hugh W. McNeil. McNeil was a capable volunteer officer with three fights under his belt. Hooker didn't choose the 13th to advance his skirmishers by chance. Most of the regiment's men were from the backwoods of rural Pennsylvania and were considered better than average marksmen. The men of the regiment had a rather unique badge that was worn on their caps. It was an actual buck's tail, and as a sign that they had hunted and killed that deer, this ornament on their caps was meant to be evidence of their superior marksmanship. Well, anyway, that's how they got their nickname, the Bucktails. The 13th was also armed with Sharp's breech-loading rifles. Hooker had complete confidence in their reputation and fighting ability, and for this reason he gave McNeil and the Bucktails the honor of leading First Corps into battle. But by the time the Bucktails started their advance, the afternoon had already passed and the sun was quickly setting, so if a fight was to take place, it would have to be soon. Eight companies of the 3rd Pennsylvania Reserves were also thrown out as skirmishers to the right of the Bucktails. During the Federal deployment, Confederate artillery began firing from long range. Hooker ordered some of Meade's guns forward to a piece of high ground, and from there the Union cannon began to reply to the Rebel fire. Four companies of Bucktails led the advance to the southwest, two on each side of the Smoketown Road. The other six companies of the regiment remained in reserve and followed within supporting distance. The skirmishers advanced steadily for about three-fourths of a mile before they reached a farm lane. From there, they could see ahead the Confederate skirmishers, behind a fence in front of the East Woods. Between the bucktails and the Confederates was a plowed field with only shallow furrows to provide cover. The main body of Hood's Confederates were still back in the cornfield and were hidden from the Federals' view by the trees of the East Woods. It was around 6 p.m. when the first Yankees came into range of the 4th Texas skirmishers. The waiting Confederates opened fire, which the Bucktails promptly returned. Colonel McNeil, who was advancing, dismounted with his men, wasted little time in calling up the reserve companies, and a loose line of battle was formed with four companies of bucktails to the right of the Smoketown Road and six to the left. As the skirmish fire quickly grew in intensity, and with cannon fire from nearby Confederate batteries beginning to take a toll, McNeil realized the bucktails couldn't simply stand pat. And so, after about 15 minutes, he gave the order to advance. McNeil placed himself at the front and center of the regiment and led his men across the plowed field. 
With no cover to protect them, it seemed as if bucktails were falling with every step forward. The Pennsylvanians advanced to within 75 yards of the fence that was their goal before throwing themselves to the ground. The rebel fire had become so intense that McNeil realized it would be murder to continue advancing in textbook fashion. If the regiment would have been armed with conventional muzzle-loading muskets, they would have been in a real bind, but they were armed with the Sharps breech-loading rifles, and so, so they could lie flat to fire and reload. By doing so, the Bucktails managed to go to ground and still keep up a steady rate of fire. In short rushes, the Bucktails began to jump up and quickly advance a few furrows at a time before dropping back to the ground. In this way, they were soon within spitting distance of the Confederate-held fence line. Judging the moment was right for an all-out charge, Colonel McNeil sprang up and shouted, Forward, Bucktails! Forward! Even as McNeil shouted for his men to charge, he was shot in the chest and died instantly. With their beloved colonel's death, a mad fury gripped the Bucktails, and they rose up and ran forward, driving the rebels back from the fence line. Pursuing the retreating rebels into the east woods, the enraged bucktails continued pushing forward. During their advance across the open ground of the plowed field, the bucktails had lost 29 men killed and 65 wounded. By this time, the light was fading rapidly, especially in amongst the trees of the east woods, but the 5th Texas, commanded by Captain Ike Turner, was ordered to advance to support the support of the 4th Texas as it fell back. Turner led his men into the woods and ran right into the still furious bucktails. The Texans managed to stop the bucktails' advance, though, and push them back to the edge of the woods. The 18th Georgia, which oddly was part of the Texas Brigade, advanced to the left of the 5th Texas, helping drive the Yankees through the trees. Meanwhile, back where the mass of Meade's division still waited, Brigadier General Truman Seymour saw that the Bucktails, who were part of his brigade, had seized the fence line and disappeared into the woodlot beyond. Seymour promptly ordered the rest of his brigade forward. As the men of the 1st, 2nd, 5th, and 6th Pennsylvania Reserves advanced, they passed the spot where the Bucktail's chaplain, W.H.D. Hatton, had stayed behind with McNeil's body and covered it with a blanket. Hatton would remain there, maintaining his sad watch over the fallen colonel's body until the next morning. Seymour's Federals were soon hotly engaged with the Texas Brigade and some Confederate artillery positioned nearby. Seymour's timely advance, though, ensured a lasting Federal foothold in the East Woods. To the right of Seymour, Meade's other two brigades, commanded by Colonel Albert Magleton and Lieutenant Colonel Robert Anderson, formed into line of battle. Meade then ordered them forward to support the embattled Seymour. A battery of the 5th U.S. Artillery also moved up to a position at the western edge of the woods. From there, the Union gunners opened a destructive, enfilading fire on the Confederate infantry and cannon that had remained in the cornfield. That fire quickly forced the rebel guns to shift to new positions to meet this unexpected threat. 
Federal batteries south of the Poffenberger farm added their fire to the shelling of the Confederate artillery below the East Woods, and soon those rebel batteries were forced to retire to a safer spot. By that point, darkness had covered the battlefield and the musketry and cannon fire sputtered to a stop. George Smalley, a correspondent for the New York Tribune who had accompanied Hooker across the Antietam, wrote that, quote, The fight flashed and glimmered and faded and finally went out in the dark. During the fighting, Hooker could be seen everywhere, posting artillery and directing the movements of his infantry. His habit of being close to the firing line would cost him the next day. Earlier, not long after Hooker's men had crossed the creek, McClellan had ridden out and joined him. At that time, Hooker had expressed unease about his lone corps' isolated position there west of the Antietam. In fact, Hooker stated his opinion that if reinforcements weren't sent promptly to support him, the rebels would eat him up. In response to Hooker's request for reinforcements, McClellan issued orders for Joseph Mansfield's 12th Corps to cross over to the west side of the Antietam. It was only shortly before midnight, though, that Mansfield's troops crossed the creek to take up a supporting position a mile or so to Hooker's left and rear. By that time, it had started to rain, gently but steadily, and the men of the 12th Corps stumbled along in the dripping darkness as best they could. The night march was difficult, to say the least, for the recruits and the new regiments, who had enough trouble trying to keep together on a route march in the daylight. Finally, about 2 a.m., their officers told them they were more or less where they were supposed to be and to get some sleep. The men of a brigade that was halted on the George Line farm could only curse their bad luck when they realized their bivouac was a freshly manured field. They could only shrug and hope the rain would soon stop. There was little doubt in anyone's mind that the fighting would resume as soon as it became light enough to distinguish friend from foe. Hooker sent word to McClellan's headquarters that he would renew his attack at dawn. Throughout the tension-filled night, nervous pickets here on the northern end of the battlefield maintained an unusually sharp exchange of fire. On Seymour's front, where the two lines remained just a stone's throw from each other, the picket fire became so intense that at one point Hooker himself got up and rode out to check on the reason for all the racket. The casualties inflicted during the brief but intense fighting on Tuesday evening were never fully reported by either side. So many field officers in Hood's division fell during the battle the next day that few reports about Tuesday's clash were ever made on the Confederate side. Most officers who survived the battle simply lumped the casualties from Tuesday evening and from Wednesday together. But casualties alone don't make a fight significant. Writing about Hooker's movement on Tuesday, James Longstreet would later write, quote, the sharp skirmish that ensued was one of the marked preliminaries of the great battle, but the Federals gained nothing by it except an advanced position which was of little benefit and disclosed their purpose. End quote. Echoing Longstreet's assessment, much is made in some, perhaps most, accounts of the battle with regard to Hooker's movement on Tuesday, specifically that by sending Hooker across the Antietam then, Instead of at first light on Wednesday morning, 
McClellan telegraphed his punch. In Stephen Sears' book about the Battle of Antietam, Landscape Turned Red, he takes Little Mac to task, writing, quote, Whatever he gained by putting Hooker into position for the assault on the 17th, he more than lost by throwing away any chance of surprise. Knowing exactly what to expect on Wednesday morning, Lee had the time to broaden and thicken his left until it was a solid front. Rather than a flank attack to roll up the enemy line, on the 17th, Hooker would be making a frontal attack on a position drawn squarely across the line of his advance. End quote. Far be it for us to defend George McClellan, but we think these arguments about Little Mac telegraphing his punch are missing the point. Those critiques are flawed because they seem to assume that McClellan's battle plan called for the main federal attack to be made on Hooker's front, there on the north end of the battlefield. But such an assumption is wrong. Based on Little Mac's preliminary report on the battle, his intention seems to have been to carry out secondary assaults by Hooker and Burnside on the northern and southern ends of Lee's line, so that Lee would weaken his center by sending troops to those threatened spots. Then McClellan would smash Lee's weakened center with the troops Little Mac had concentrated in the Union Center for that very purpose. So, if that was indeed McClellan's plan, and we think it was, then sending Hooker across the Antietam on Tuesday worked perfectly, since Lee did, in fact, shift the majority of Stonewall's command and some of Longstreet's to the north end of his line, strengthening that flank to meet the Federal assault in that sector on Wednesday. As Tracy said, far be it for us to defend Little Mac, but we thought it only fair to point out that we think this talk of him telegraphing his punch with Hooker's move on Tuesday is just plain wrong, since if on Wednesday, if McClellan had stuck with his plan, such as it was, he would almost certainly have scored a smashing victory over Lee's overextended Confederates. As we said before, though, an adequate plan still has to be adequately carried out, and in the end, as we'll see, Little Mac wasn't enough of a field general to do even that much. All right, well, with this episode, Tracy and I had fully intended to dive into the action at the start of the battle on the morning of the 17th, but after the last show was done, we both felt we'd, I guess, missed an opportunity to tell the story of the fighting that took place on Tuesday evening after Hooker's first corps had moved across the Antietam. And so we hope you guys don't mind that we kind of backtracked with this episode to tell that story in more detail. Most accounts of the Battle of Antietam do kind of gloss over the fighting on Tuesday evening, but for the men who took part in it, like Colonel Hugh McNeil of the Bucktails and Colonel Philip Little of the 11th Mississippi in Law's Brigade, who was mortally wounded Tuesday evening, well, for them, the fighting on the 16th on the eve of the great battle, was far from insignificant. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time isn't exactly a book. It's the Antietam Expedition Guide, done by Travel Brains and the History Channel. 
Yep, this is one of those self-guided audio tours that you can get to enhance your visit to a Civil War battlefield. And for Antietam, we like this one. It has a nice booklet in addition to the CDs for the self-guided tour of the battlefield. And then there's also a multimedia CD-ROM of the Antietam campaign. But honestly, I don't know that we've even tried that out. Have you? Nope. Yeah, me neither. Um, okay. Anyway, the CDs and the booklet are good stuff. And if you're going to be visiting the battlefield, you might just want to check out the Antietam Expedition Guide by Travel Brains and the History Channel. Don't forget you can find all of our book and other recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then, just yesterday, we released the 51st members episode, and it's Antietam-related. It's the story of Confederate Major General D.R. Jones and Union Colonel Henry Kingsbury, who were brothers-in-law and who found themselves facing each other on opposite sides of Antietam Creek on September 17, 1862. Yep, and a big thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, John, Todd, James, Jeff, and Ron. Thanks, guys. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.